In this episode of the Menopause Series, I'm joined by Dr. Jen Gunter, and it was her first visit to the podcast. And it was when she was promoting her book, The Vagina Bible. She is such a wonderful resource. She is so generous as well with her expertise and her knowledge, and she really does tell it like it is, which I appreciate. So this episode is really everything that you need or want to know about um, the cult of wellness and how it might be impacting on how we view our our sexual health, our our health overall, and how we can avoid falling for clickbait headlines about our health, which is something she is extremely passionate about. I hope that you find this useful. This episode was originally published in November of 2019, but here it is again as part of the Menopause series. It's Dr. Jen Gunter on The Emma Gunn Show. Hello, hi, and welcome to The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner, and in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Jen Gunter. Jen is an OBGYN and is known as Twitter's resident gynecologist. She is outspoken, she isn't afraid to call out BS, and perhaps it's worth reminding you she is a doctor, a working doctor who sees patients every single day, is constantly updating her knowledge, keeping abreast of the latest breakthroughs in medicine, and speaking to patients in clinic all the live long day. So if she tells you not to stick a jade egg in your vagina, I would listen to her. She is incredibly busy with patients and also her new book, The Vagina Bible. And to that point, we recorded super early her time, like crazy o'clock, mere hours after an earthquake had woken her up in the middle of the night, actually, fueled by coffee. That was obviously both of us in order to record this episode via Skype. So you can tell it's a, an internet call, but I think it's I think it's fine. I had a blast chatting to Jen. We talked about her book, but we also really got stuck into the wellness industry and when it's okay to believe what you read and when it absolutely isn't. We also discussed how to use your critical thinking when you're bombarded with messages all day long about how to live a better life. And you know what I mean. You see a really scary headline that makes you question the contents of your grocery basket or the beauty products you've been using or the type of car you drive or whatever else it might be. And it worries you. It makes you scared. I've fallen for it too, trust me. But Jen has some amazing advice on how to not get caught up in scaremongering. And it's genius, honestly. It just makes so much sense. Um, If it doesn't change how you use the internet after this podcast then I'd be very surprised because it certainly has changed how I use it. We obviously talk about her new book, The Vagina Bible, which is a brilliant resource for anyone who wants to understand the anatomy and health of their vagina and vulva and what the difference is between the two, if you don't already know. And she also takes the time to answer some listener questions at the end of the show. I honestly loved chatting to Jen and I cannot wait to hang out with her when she comes to London and I'm really keen to get her on the show again at some point because she's just the kind of woman I could speak to every single day for the entirety of the day so all the links to Jen the book etc will be in the show notes but I want you to hear this conversation here she is Dr Jen Gunter on the Emma Gunn show Dr Jen Gunter thank you so much for being on the Emma Gunn show Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an utter privilege because you are such a busy woman and you are doing so many good things out in the world. But you have just recently put out um, a book, which is The Vagina Bible. And I guess, (laughs) and I guess this, many people I will have spoken about you in the introduction already. A lot of people might know you as being very outspoken, very fact-based, they may follow your Twitter feed and you are known as, is this right? You're known as um, Twitter's gynecologist. Yes. 
<laughs> Listeners, for reference, a cat just walked across <laughs> Jen's desk <laughs> on this video call. Um, but it wouldn't be correct, I don't think, to say that the book is an extension of your Twitter. It's more an expression of your expertise. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that Twitter is is definitely one part of my personality, and and I definitely have that sort of fiery. I mean, that's very me, all mm. authentic. But um, but the but the book is more uh, and definitely an extension of of how I am in the office and how I am when I'm explaining something medically to someone. You know, if I was sitting next to you on a bus or an airplane, or you were at a dinner party, or you were in my office, this would pretty much be how I would um, how I would explain things. So I think that. Um, that yeah, it's it's really more an extension of of the, my I would like to think accessible medical side, and I think accessible to making medicine accessible is really really important because obviously we're living in this time where everyone has access to the internet and not everything you read on the internet is correct or true, and I mean your background you started off in keeping up with kind of the celebrity noise for want of a better example so that you could answer your patients queries in real time is that correct if they were reading about a cleanse in a magazine you were like well I need to know what it is so I can tell them yeah yeah so when I was you know a resident and on call waiting for women to deliver because you know there's often downtime I would read like people magazine and and all the reader's digest was a big one at the time that had a lot of medical stuff in it that people used to read and because people would ask questions that never came up you know in textbooks that we were never taught and and I would think well huh looks like they're getting some of it from here so maybe if I know about what is in these magazines then I'll actually at least not have this sort of dumbfounded expression on my face when the patient <laughs> asks me a question. Because, you know, when your doctor has a blank expression, that's not very comforting. And you think it's an important question because you read about it or heard about it. And then if your doctor looks dismissive, even if they're not trying to be because they're just scrambling because they've never heard of that, um, it, it makes you think, well, maybe they're not taking me seriously. And so I just sort of came up with this idea in my head that it might be really important to just to know like like what I know what I think people should know but that's clearly not always what's coming in on the other end mm. and maybe if I knew about that that would be useful and and it turned out that it was really useful when did you feel as though you were you went from sort of mild myth busting to having to say hang on a minute this is this is really going out of control <laughs> Well, you know, I started in getting involved with sort of, I guess, writing about myths when I initially I was writing about prematurity because my kids were born very prematurely and both of them uh, were very vulnerable to, to influenza vaccine, you know, vaccine preventable disease and also measles. And, and so I was I live in an area of the country with a very high rate of non-vaccination, which is, of course, you know, one of the big ironies for mm -hmm. me. Um, and so I was really I started getting really interested in why people believe sort of these absolute falsehoods, why people who, you know, I live in an area of the country where everybody believes the science of global warming. Mm -hmm. But we have a hard time to get everybody to believe the science of vaccine safety, even though we have more data on vaccine safety. I mean, because you can actually do experiments mm. to prove this. So it was fascinating to me. And I, I realized that um, that if there were these kinds of myths out there, you know, what else were my patients being exposed to? And so as my patient, my my kids got a bit older and, you know, I was less um, prematurity was I would say less acute to me, I started thinking, well, maybe I should really sort of see what, 
what's going on in the reproductive health arena. Uh, and, and here I am. Well, actually, that's a good point on which to sort of dial it back a few steps and talk about your vagenda, which is for every woman to be empowered with accurate information about the vagina and the vulva. Yes, that's and, it. That's it. That's the vagenda. <laughs> the vagenda. But even that, um, even that sentence uh, requires for some explanation, as in what is the vagina? What is the vulva? What is the difference? Where is one? Where is the other? And all of that. Is that something that you found quite early on is that um, people would just kind of, or women would talk about down there or the general region, but not the specifics? Yeah, I think that's always been pretty common. I mean, in it's amazing to me that even in a room with your obstetrician or gynecologist with the door shut and there's nobody listening, that many women have trouble describing their body parts. Mm. And a lot of it is they don't know because the quality of sex education is dismal. And if the media aren't allowed to say the words vagina and vulva or they don't say them, because the people making the decisions are largely male who, you know, think it's silly to say both. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I, I heard whether it's true or not, but that in Grey's Anatomy, the word, you know, JJ came about because they, the executives who I'm going to guess were largely male mm. felt the word vagina had been used too much in one episode. And so they needed another word. I'm like, well, but, but that's the word. <laughs> I mean, not, not every word, ha you know, like medical parts generally have like one term, like it's the elbow, um, you know, we, you know, and so no one would have said that, you know, I have a sore elbow if that was said <laughs> multiple times, no one would be worried about that. So you start to think about all these sort of decisions that happen in, um, in and around us every day and how they control what we think. And it's fascinating that, especially in America, we live in a country where sex is used to sell everything, yet we can't have non-sophomore grown-up adult discussions mm -hmm. about sex. It's that, that dichotomy fascinates me. It is, it is quite bonkers. And also the idea of the JJ as a, as an additional word, because vagina is overused, is just hilarious, right? Right. And it's all these terms sound so babyish mm -hmm. and you start to think about like how we talk about the vulva and vagina and we we reduce it in such a way to you know to sort of either you know either to use terms that are offensive or to use terms that are almost infantile mm. um, you know so so you're either describing you're either describing it in in you're, you're not describing it in any shape or form of how how we should be talking about it so it's sort of these these sort of surrounding conversations and you think, well, the JJ, like, that sounds like baby talk. Mm. Like, like we shouldn't be talking about a grown up woman's body like yeah. that. Like, you know, I, you wouldn't call your toe, like, Oh, your toe toe or something. <laughs> you know, like, um, so you start to think about it. So one thing I always do is I think, well, would I use that terminology to describe another body part? Mm -hmm. And the answer is always no. Or how do we describe male anatomy? Do, so I always try to flip it. And mm. it's really such an interesting exercise. Every single thing that you hear about, you know, um, the reproductive tract for, for women, think about flipping it to other body parts or think about flipping it to men. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, that we wouldn't do that. Mm. It, it strikes me, all of the different words for vagina, it strikes me that they're disconnecting. They further disconnect the woman from their reproductive system. Is that how you see it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all very reductive. It's very, I think it's almost reductive. It sort mm. of, it disconnects women in the sense that it sort of makes them, the sum total of them is their vagina, basically. Mm-hmm. And how disconnecting is that? Like, you know, we're part, you know, we are so many things. Um, and, you know, and it's fascinating to me that it's not just like, government that is intent on like anti-choice legislation like we see that from from sites that are well wellness sites as well because they talk about like your vagina being your source of feminine energy i'm like um no that's my brain (laughs) my brain does that thank you yeah my, my brain controls that and so, you know, that is just as offensive. That's reducing me to a vagina as well. Mm. So it's fascinating that we see that kind of on what we might think are both ends of the spectrum. But I actually really think that that wellness is a very sort of patriarchal pursuit. Mm. We'll come back to that shortly. But I wanted to ask, you have always been outspoken about reproductive rights. Is it correct that you were protesting at the age of 16? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I got on my 10-speed bike and I rode down to the first freestanding abortion clinic where I grew up in Winnipeg, um, Manitoba, Canada. And uh, I had seen it on the news. And uh, my parents, my parents actually were, were both from um, Newcastle, by the way. Oh. Um, yes. Um, and a very conservative and very British, no sex please for British kind of household. <laughs> um, very much so. But, oh, wow. Uh, but, yeah, but they were both... Um, believe it or not, very Mm -hmm. pro-choice. And I remember sitting watching the news and hearing them mutter, well, you know, that's ridiculous and it's nobody's business what you do with your body kind of thing in, you know, in a very British way. And, uh, and so it was, that was, I think the one very, very, I don't think I had the greatest parenting, but that was one very important piece of parenting that they, um, they parroted what they saw on the news as being terrible and, um, repeated that to me. And I, and so that stuck with me and I was like, yeah, that isn't right. Nobody should get to tell you what to do with your body. And so when I saw on the news that there were all these protesters at the clinic, I was like, well, I'm going to get on my bike and uh, it's a Saturday and I'm going to ride down and I'm going to stand in support with the women. And, And, and so we did. And was it a defining moment having conversations with like-minded people? Did you did it open up a world to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was. I felt like, yeah, like this matters. Like it matters to stand up for something. I think that was sort of what I I really felt. And at that time in Canada, to get an abortion, you had to present your case to your doctor, your your family doctor, or your OBGYN, who would then write a letter about your case to a three-person panel who would then decide if your story was tragic enough to let you have an abortion. And that to me was just, like, I I think I was a feminist before I knew what the word feminism was. Mm -hmm. And that just enraged me, that idea that that all these people that didn't know about you were going to control what happened to your body and how Mm -hmm. dare they. Um, So so it was, uh, and then when that law was overturned when I was in medical school, and then abortion just became a medical procedure, hey, isn't that revolutionary? Um, And guess what? The abortion rates didn't go up. Wow. It turns out you can trust people to manage their own reproductive health just fine. (laughs) Well, can't you just... It's interesting what you said there about nobody should tell anyone else what to do with their body. Um, And then what you're doing is empowering people to be able to make the choices, to be able to decide what to do with their body. Yeah, I'm very obsessed with that. So I'm absolutely obsessed with this, the concept of informed consent and Mm -hmm. choice, because you, we all talk about being an empowered patient, 
But you can't be an empowered patient with inaccurate information, right? Mm. That's being led down the garden path. That's not being empowered. Mm. And so people need to have facts. Like when I talk to someone about surgery, I hopefully give them all the potential benefits and I give them all the potential risks. And then I say, you decide and you get to decide what to do with your body. Um, And sometimes people make decisions I agree with. And sometimes people make decisions I don't agree with, but it's their body Mm. and their choice. And so as long as I've done my due diligence and I've made sure they've had accurate information that's unbiased, you get to make those choices. But what I see with you know, wellness products or misinformation from the medical community or inaccurate information online from journalists or social media is all these people getting exposed to information that leads to uninformed choice. And you can't be empowered with that. And I would hear in the office, you know, women would come in with myths and misinformation and they would have made decisions about their bodies they wish they hadn't made. And they, they got that information from what they thought were reliable sources. Yeah. And and so I would correct them and I'd explain and they go, how did I not know? Mm. And so that kind of really became that sort of agenda that I want everybody to know so you can make an you can make an empowered decision. And I think that's really interesting and and it's before we started recording I was chatting to a lot of my friends on Messenger about um, the fact that I was talking to you and all of them kind of fed into this. And I was going to come onto it a lot later, but I just um, I might read out a question from Claire Coleman, who's a hugely respected investigative health and beauty journalist over in the UK. And she said, and I'm just going to read it verbatim because she said, oh, my God, I'd love it if you do that, because it speaks to exactly what you just said. So she says, and I quote, OMG, right. What I would love to ask her is how she tackles the pseudoscience and bullshit. How do you engage with these people? Do you engage with them? Basically, whether it's vaccines or parabens or toxicity and beauty or whatever, I feel like people are so entrenched in their positions that there's no space for discussion or convincing them otherwise. Because I'm like, because, well, science and evidence and randomized controlled trials, and they're like, yeah, but big pharma and government conspiracy and fake news, like these are equal and worthy opponents to science. And then I want to cry and I don't know what to do because if they think something that they read on the internet is as valid as something evidence-based, then good can never triumph over evil. So what do you do? That's what I would like to ask her because I try, I really try and so do many others in the industry, but it's exhausting and it's like whack-a-mole when people believe stuff that celebrities say instead of science. I feel like we're effed. I've edited. Uh, <laughs> I've edited. <laughs> is she is she is she inside my head? I feel like she's inside my head. Um, because I say whack-a-mole all the time. It's just like whack-a-mole. So I think I'll, I'll really introduce you. Yeah. Well, um, it's really fascinating to me because there is um it's an astounding thing. It's almost like a religion for many people, right? So and how you couldn't sway someone from their religion because that's a belief. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of break it down, when you kind of look at the science of it, there are these hardcore believers who really are into conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating. People who are more likely to believe in medical conspiracy theories are more likely to buy supplements, which makes no (laughs) sense because supplements often don't contain what they say. So you're actually putting like an unknown substance into your body. If I had a conspiracy theory, I would be like scared about that, Mm -hmm. I think. But so the the people who want to sell these products are invested in conspiracy theories. So so I sort of view that sort of the ten percent who are like hardcore. I'm not going to reach those people. I'm not. 
the the way that that you're going to reach the way, the way those people are going to be reached is by somebody like a sister or friends, you know, saying having casual conversations and gradually, gradually, gradually sort of exposing them to sort of the truth. Mm -hmm. So what I try to focus on is the 90% that get contaminated by basically the information that 10% puts out, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of people um, just don't know. They really don't. And what happens is they, they read this information that sounds great and fantastical stuff we all pay attention to. Um, so one is to get information out and explain to them. But the other thing I do is I really insist, and I bring this up a lot, and, and it makes people think. I say, you know, that's great that you think, oh, Big Farm is evil, the beauty industry is evil, all these people are evil. Okay. Um, so at least, you know, if I went to a company that made antidepressants and I walked to the end of the line and I pulled a pill off and we tested it, it would contain exactly what they say, you know, within maybe a one to 2% margin of error, which would be allowed. There'd mm-hmm. be a, an allowed margin of error for dosage. And at least that company would have done some studies about antidepressants. Now it's true. They might've suppressed some data, but they've done some work. Wellness, people who are promoting, you know, whatever fad, they've done no work and they're trying to profit off of you. Mm. So who's worse? The company that's done some data that is at least producing what they claim or the company where 70% of their substances could have God knows what. Mm. The company that's lying to you and telling you that you can drink collagen for your skin when you can't. You can have a steak. It's the same thing. It's absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, they're... Anybody who's trying to give you information and is selling you product, you need to look with the same eye as Big Pharma, and I want you to explain to me then why I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And that makes people think. They're like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Like, like if you think Big Pharma's evil, then Big Wellness is worse. Mm-hmm. Big Natural's worse. They've done less work, you know? And so I do, I talk about that. And then the other thing is some people uh, believe in these things because of fear. And so... Uh, when people are afraid of things, the worst thing to do is actually scare them more. So it's sometimes good to really hear people's stories and find out why they believe what they believe. Because mm-hmm. if it's fear-based, then me saying, oh, if you don't get the measles vaccine, you're going to die. What that does is that makes them actually have indecision. Mm-hmm. So you know, so I, I do think we need to study more about why people sort of have these beliefs. But, but those are kind of the ways I tackle some of them. And it, it does feel like whack-a-mole. Um, but you know, I think the answer, the antidote is really facts and trying to get people factual information, you Mm. know, earlier. I mean, I've written in my notes, it sounds, it sounds so simplistic to say this, but facts are so important to you. Like facts, 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 data, 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 trial, trial, trial. Yeah. And sometimes I'll say to people, so, okay, so you're willing to believe all this about whatever product and that's not factual. Do you want your airplane to fly without facts? (laughs) Because I want my air, I I want my airplane to fly with facts. Mm. I don't want, you know, if seventy percent of supplements are adulterated, I don't want seventy percent of the jet fuel to be adulterated, right? Mm. Like I want it to be what it claims. So, so why would you not want that with something you're going to put in your body mm. or on your body, right? I think the wellness industry or big wellness, as you just called it, which I will be stealing, is. <laughs> Is really interesting. I like you. I went to it was in London, but I went to the InGoop Health Summit. I was invited by them, and the thing that I observed, much like you, but obviously from a very different perspective, was it made me realise that what they have done and the wellness industry as a whole, not just Goop, 
is they've given women a forum in which they can speak safely about themselves or that it, it's perceived as being safe. It's like maybe they go to their GP and here in the UK you have an eight or ten minute appointment and it's very tight and it's a tight squeeze and you might not get everything that you want out. Mm-hmm. And what these forums, websites and places do is they give women a place where they can have a bigger conversation. But that's where not having the right information can become dangerous, right? Yeah, it's actually very predatory because what they're doing is they're providing the illusion of caring. Because if you cared for somebody, you wouldn't tell them that you could cleanse non-existent parasites with goat's milk. If you really cared for someone, you wouldn't say that bras cause breast cancer. If you really cared for someone, their latest thing is they were pushing what I can only describe as bespoke tums, like antacids, <laughs> you know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell people that they should take supplements, right? Like if you cared for women, you wouldn't push supplements for menopause that are useless and potentially harmful. So what they do is they, and that's, that's one thing that I absolutely noticed as well, that they, 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 they are empathetic and they're sympathetic, Mm -hmm. but that's the shell game that gets people in the door. It's no different than, you know, the snake oil salesman coming door to door and going, Hey, I know you haven't been listened to. I know that you have a hard life. Come, come up to my stand here, come to my wagon. And I'm going to tell you, tell me your woes. Mm -hmm. You sit and listen till the person's told you all their woes. And you're like, you know what? I have an answer for that. And that's what Goop does. And so it's predatory. It's it's very patriarchal because to misinform women about their bodies is the patriarchy. Mm. Um, and you've yeah. also, I'm going to try and find the exact wording that you used about it, actually, because you said something like it's feminism, uh, well, it's patriarchy wrapped up in faux feminism or something like that. I can't find yeah, it in my notes. I think I said it's patriarchy, um, patriarchy placed in a glass jar wrapped with a pink ribbon, um, and pushed off as feminism, but it's faux feminism, uh, and because it is, it's telling women to buy useless products, telling women to be afraid, um, is, is not feminism. Feminism is factual information because it's equality and you don't have equality with facts, with facts. Mm. And the thing that I find really fascinating about it is that, um, they just, they're given such a pass with all this clear misinformation. Like at the Goop Health Conference, you probably noticed the same thing. There's all these women lining up to get vitamin B12 shots, right? All these women pulling down their yoga pants and, you know, you, first of all, you don't need, I know, right. I mean, I'm like, really, you're going to let someone inject someone you, you, you never, you should have an interview with a physician to see if you actually need this. Right. Mm -hmm. So here, what they're doing is they're actually doing the same thing. They're actually being worse. They're just, they're, they're lining people up and giving them a substance that they don't need because the average person does not need vitamin B12 shots. And Oh, by the way, oral works just as well as injection. So if you need it, why are you getting an injection? Because it's the illusion you're doing something bigger, right? Ooh, and it, and vitamin B12 is a beautiful red. It looks like an elixir. <laughs> um, right? We'll come on to red in a minute as well, actually, because you said something else that I love. Um, but I guess maybe I'm being too generous. Uh, having spoken to you, I think I know how you feel about this. But I always think, well, they're coming from a good place, people who do this. They're, there's a best interest. They're not, they're not trying to con. But I guess... You obviously have a completely different set of skills, and you would say actually there there is a conning element to it. Oh, Goop is total. Goop Health is a big con job. Most of their products are useless. If you're selling useless products, how are you not a con job? 
supplements don't help women, right? Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't help anybody unless you've maybe had bariatric surgery or you're elderly and have malabsorption. So, but but that's not who Goop is marketing to, right? Mm -hmm. They're marketing to otherwise healthy individuals who feel that they've been maybe dismissed by their physicians, but they're otherwise healthy, but they're certainly not people who are the very small percentage of people we would recommend supplements for. So you're pushing substances that actually increase all cause mortality on women, right? So supplements at worst do nothing. So it's a waste of $79 a month. So how is that good Mm. for women? Um, or you're increasing the risk of getting cancer and dying. Like I mean, some of their supplements have green tea leaf extract, which, you know, causes liver failure. So, you know, I mean, how is that helpful to women? Some of them have super high doses of vitamin A. Like these are things that are not useful in any way. And so I see places, so medicine has gaps. Absolutely. Spending seven minutes with someone in the office is not a way to do anything but diagnose, you know, a sore throat or an ear infection. Like that's great for some acute care, but it's not the way to sort of deal with people who have other concerns. And, you know, if you, you need to do a pap smear on a woman, seven minutes. Oh, (laughs) sorry. I had a, I'm sorry. You probably didn't hear that, but I just got a, a ping that was quite loud. Well, and so the ping was like, you're right, damn it, seven minutes isn't enough for a pap smear. It was just reinforcing the point. That's what I took it as. Me and too, so, me too. And so what happens is we have these absolute gaps in medicine. But what people like Gwyneth Paltrow and companies like Goop and essentially every wellness company does is they're exploiting those gaps. They're not filling those gaps and there's a difference, right? If they were filling those gaps, they wouldn't be pushing supplements. They wouldn't be telling women to put jade eggs in their vagina, jade eggs that you can, you know, recharge by the energy of the moon, jade eggs that I bought on Amazon for $16 for a set of three that they're selling for $66 for one. Mm. I mean, they wouldn't be making up things. They wouldn't be selling $5,000 infrared saunas to treat cancer. That's pretty predatory. I get, yeah. When you put it like that, I, I mean, because you know, the other side of it and you probably deal with the fallout of that, of people saying, well, I've been having these shots and I've been taking these supplements. I just, I guess I like to think that people aren't coming at it to try and uh, exploit you. And also when I was, sorry, carry on. Oh no. I mean, I was just thinking that I, anybody who sells useless products who should know better Mm -hmm. is trying to exploit you. I mean, certainly there are small bloggers who read something and they think, Oh, I'm passing on good information and they're misinformed. I mean, that's still harmful, but Mm -hmm. they're not selling you a product and you know, they, they're trying to do the best with what they have. And, and in general, once you correct them, they're, they're happy. But in my opinion, every, or my experience, every single person who's promoting a specific product, whether it's goop, or you see these people on Instagram promoting like yoni pearls, like bags of herbs to stick in your vagina. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Or people talking about the benefits of vaginal steaming. Like they're either doing that for page clicks or to sell product. Mm. And so how does that serve women? And I guess that, you know, it's, really important for people to sort of always stop and follow everything kind of back to the source because people do that with big pharma all Mm. the time. Mm. And so, and I just think that if you're going to be critical of how your doctor treats you in the office, which you have every right to be, well, you should extend that same criticism to everybody else who's in the health ventures as well. And remember there's 
health shouldn't be a venture, mm. you know, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it should be about good information and wellness because there's like a new trend, like health can't be trendy. It takes us years, decades, sometimes longer to find out if a compound is helpful. But since I've been in the wellness sphere, it's been turmeric, charcoal, <laughs> CBD. And I think there was one other thing. So like, you know, I've been into wellness for about four years and we've cycled through four things. And interestingly, they all look cool on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Um, and you're right. Now, even you're saying it turmeric, all of these things, I've had a turmeric latte. Why? Hey. Why would I mess with my coffee, Jen? I know. Oh, right. Your coffee is sacred. So I'll tell you a funny story. So I was with my um, Canadian publisher, um, Penguin, who I love, and I was with my publicist and we were in between events and we popped into this lovely coffee shop that made the most amazing coffee. And she, she picked up this little juice, which was like turmeric orange juice in the fridge. And she's like, Oh, I, I feel like I, I just need a little immune system boost. And I'm like, Sharon, what are you doing? Like, that's like, five dollars that you're throwing down the drain you could buy if you really want orange juice which is basically useless it's just liquid sugar um if you really are craving orange juice you can get one at the grocery store for like a, a dollar for less than that probably and you don't need the turmeric what are you but she was willing to spend five dollars because it had that kind of like health sticker on it and that's something that i think is a super important point so what happens is Wellness capitalizes on this idea that as women, we feel we need an excuse to spend money on ourselves, right? Ooh. So I have no problem. Look, if you love, so on Goop right now, they have a, a 300 or $450. They, have, they were selling a $450 hyaluronic acid for your face, $450 hyaluronic acid. I use one that's $9 and it works pretty well. Um, and the ingredients really, I think it had some grapeseed extract or something. That was like the only difference. Now it is in a pretty jar and some people love pretty jars with, and products with fancy smells. And look, if you've got the disposable cash and some people like to pay for expensive things, they like to say, you know, like I bought myself a Gucci purse. That's what I wanted. I all my whole life. I wanted a Gucci purse, but I don't kid myself. It carries my money any better than my $10 purse. Right? Like I'm being factual about that. Mm. So if you want your countertop to look like a sort of a steampunk apothecary, and that is your, your jam, that's fine. That's totally acceptable to, to buy it for that reason. Mm. But it's not acceptable to buy it because it's, you're being told that it's a better product or a safer product, mm. right? And that's the difference between being honest about, about selling it. You know, like I, I also like expensive shoes. That's what I like. I love this pair of shoes called Fluvogs, which are, they're a Canadian brand and they're very comfortable, but I don't kid myself that they align my chakras. I just buy them <laughs> because I like them. Right. And they bring me joy and I have them in a display case. So I think wellness has capitalized on this idea that women feel they need an excuse for joy. That's so interesting. I'd never thought about it like that. I've definitely thought about things like crystals as delegating your destiny to something else, which worries me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People are people are like, oh, if I and that gets back to that fear motivation, right? Mm -hmm. If I make the decision, so we look at, so there's been some research with the vaccines and I bet you could extend it to everything. Mm. So if I 
get my child vaccinated and something bad happens to my child from the vaccine, I've done it. I've caused the harm. But if I don't get my child vaccinated and they catch the measles, well, that's how it was meant to be. That's what that's that was sort of the destiny. And it doesn't make any sense when you take it apart, but feelings don't often make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So you could say that with crystals as well, you know, like I, you know, you're sort of you're ask you're you're sort of putting I guess your destiny into something else because maybe it's hard to think about it yourself or things are going badly for you mm-hmm. and you think, okay, well, how could this hurt? Cause my, you know, I just broke up with my boyfriend or I just had a big hard time at work, but, but that's pretty predatory, mm-hmm. um, in a way. I mean, I guess, you know, unless you're thinking about it as a religion. Yeah. And so, you know, if you, if you're looking at buying this crystal as a religious artifact, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I, people have religious artifacts and, you know, people have crosses in their house. They have candles that are religious. They do all those things. So if you look at wellness as a religion, which is, I believe how we should look at it, then buying a crystal is fine. But if you look at it as a health perspective, it's not. Do you see it as a religion or do you see it as a cult? I mean, I'm an atheist. I probably shouldn't talk about religion, (laughs) the intersection between religions and cults. Um, but I don't, cause I don't actually know the difference. I'm That's sure there point. is. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure cults are destructive in ways and, and religion can be very productive for very many people and mm-hmm. very many people find personal satisfaction in that and live wonderful, meaningful, meaningful lives. So I don't think that I can draw the line. Mm. Um, but so I think that probably there's some people who treat wellness as religion. And there's some people who treat it as a, more of a cult, right? The people who refu- who are the hardcore 10 percenters mm-hmm. who are in the conspiracy theorist kind of thing, like, oh, big pharma, you know, everything's evil. You should do coffee enemas for depression. I mean, that has to be a cult. Drink your coffee, people. I know, right? Like, <laughs> how, how can drinking your coffee not help you, but putting it in your rectum can and what specific toxins are the coffee enemas actually removing? That's the fascinating thing about wellness. They, they sort of, it's like everything about wellness is an introductory paragraph. They don't actually say, okay, so our hypo, everything is a hypothesis. Our hypothesis is that coffee enemas are going to treat you depression. Okay, I'm game, so please explain that to me. But there's never, there's never any follow-up. That is, I love that. It's a, it's a hypothesis. Okay, so we've established that we have medicine. Trust, <laughs> you know, with data, trials, etc. And we also have wellness. And they're at polar, polar opposites. How is the average woman who's busy, or man, who is busy and has a lot on their plate, who wants to deal with a health issue, whatever that might be, how are they supposed to employ critical thinking? so that they can get the best out of a doctor's appointment, but also take what could potentially be helpful from what they read online that would come from maybe the wellness world. So I always tell people that you need, if you, it's great to research information online. I love it. I mean, a lot of doctors are like, oh, they, they brought in all this online information. I'm like, that's great. That means they're interested in their health. Mm. And interested patients are wonderful. I mean, all patients are wonderful, but it, I, you would never... The internet is like a library and you would never discourage someone from going to the library, but you might say, Hey, you know, there are sections of the library that are better for what you're interested in. So if you're interested in your health, you want to be in the science section, not in the fiction section. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's, let's talk about how to use the library. Um, and so I, I tell people that 
the first piece of information that you hear about your, whatever it is, is probably going to be the one that sticks with you the most. Mm -hmm. That seems to be, no matter what you're reading about, it's like, or no matter what you're shopping, anything, it seems like that first thing you see is the one that's the hardest for you to, to disbelieve. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, or to, to discard or whatever. So I tell people that first, you need to be so mindful about how you're starting your online search and that you can never get information ever from anyone selling you product. You can't. That would be the same thing as getting your information about depression from the company that makes antidepressants. And no one would do that. No one would do that. So I say you need to go to sites that don't have information. In the UK, you have the NHS. This are really, they have a great website. There's a lot of good information to start there. So, And the good thing is I think a lot of people have a high degree of trust, especially in the UK with the NHS. They just wish there were more resources. So mm -hmm. They don't think it's like a bad thing. They just wish there was more of it. So start there. Start with, um, you know, with... Uh, for example, about women's health, the Royal College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they have a great website and they have information for patients. And um, this, the World Health Organization has great information. And the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, and um, the American College of, Obstetrics and of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So start with medical professional societies. Start with places that don't mm -hmm. have advertising. Start with, um, you know, the, uh, like the, I know in, in the UK you also have these trusts, and I don't quite understand what they are, but they also tend to have a lot of good information mm -hmm. online. So start with people who aren't selling you product. Start with people who are giving you information for free. So, um, so the key there is don't punch it into Google. Look at one of those uh, resources that you've just mentioned, and I'll put the link in the show notes so people can click through and then find the information via that portal rather than just via the doorway exactly. of Google. Exactly. If you go to Google, you're at whims of ads of what's popular. Uh, and I've done this where I've done a Google search and I've searched within, you know, a professional organization mm -hmm. and the amount of the difference is just incredible. Even doing a different Google search on a different day or changing the yeah. keywords just slightly. Like I'm, uh, I'm scared. My son had a vaccine reaction gives you all kinds of really bad stuff versus if you use medical language in your Google search, you're more likely to get medical stuff. So that's the other thing is finding um, sources that you know are providing good information. I hope for many women that I'm one of those sources and that they, you know, I've had patients, you know, I had this one woman a few years ago, which is probably, I feel like this was one of the pinnacles of, of, of online blogging was I had written this blog post about why it's fine to get an IUD if you've never been pregnant. And it's like something like, so like seven, 17% of OBGYNs tell women that they can't have an IUD if they haven't been pregnant, which is absolutely, you know, a load of BS. You can, but you know, that that's, those are the gaps in medicine. So she kind of worried that her older male OBGYN might be like that. So I had written this blog post, why it's okay. So she printed it off and she went in and she told him she wanted the IUD and he started giving her their spiel about why she couldn't have it because she had been pregnant. And she pulls out the blog post and slams it down on the table. And she says, well, Jen Gunter says I can have one. Do you know of her? Have you heard of Jen Gunter? She says I can have an IUD and she got it. Oh, well, the there's your critical thinking. <laughs> right? Like that's an empowered patient. Mm. And you know what? She shouldn't have to do that, right? That mm. should, but I bet that doctor's never going to forget that interaction. And the next time a woman asks for, so she's not only helped herself, she's helped everybody else. Mm. And, empower, and empowerment is so important to you. It's to be able to give women that information so they can say, I hear you. I know that you believe that I shouldn't have this, but here's a counter argument from 
a professional with qualifications who knows what they're right. talking about. Yeah. I mean, when patients give me good information, I, I mean, I, I'm like, wow, let me look at that. I, you know, cause there's, you can't read every single study as a doctor. Mm. It's not possible. And so I'm like, but what I'll say is let me just, you know, if it's not something I know about, I'll say, well, let me just give me some time to research this. And unfortunately I would say 99 times out of hundred, what they brought in is a predatory journal right? Because there are so many rabbit holes, right? Or they brought in, I'm like, oh, well, hey, yeah, I know this doctor wrote this blog post, but did you know at the end that what they want you to do is buy their very specific test that isn't FDA approved and they want you to buy this and this and this. So, and I'll explain to them why I think it's misinformation, mm. but I'll say, but I'll spend the time to look at it because it doesn't take that long. It takes mm. 10, 15 minutes to research it because if I want to get that patient if I want to help that patient, that's the step that I need to do. Sometimes I need to look in someone's ears to help them. Well, not me. I'm a gynecologist. I actually wouldn't look in your ears, but you know, um, you know, but sometimes I need to look at someone's vulva to help them. Um, sometimes I need to look in someone's vagina to help them, but I always have to listen to someone to help them. Mm. Right. I, always have to do that. And if that's how I need to listen to that patient, so then she's going to come back to me and trust me. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to just dismiss her and send her back off to the arms of people who are trying to sell her crap. Mm. I want her to, to trust me. And so, you know, and most people are super grateful when you say, Oh, wow, I saw that information and you, I read through it and this is why it's incorrect. 99 times out of hundred, they're like, wow, thank you so much for taking the time. Because if you just dismiss them, you've dismissed all those efforts they did. And they might've spent hours researching that. And that's mm. mean, that's mean to say, oh, well, that's just garbage. You're not even looking at it. That, mm. That's not right. You want to hear someone's argument and then explain, you know, why it might be good or not. Well, another thing that you've uh, spoken about previously, hearing a lot in clinic is women, um, uh, so this is over your 25 years, is you having to reassure women that their vaginas look and smell okay, despite yeah. what they have been told. And this obviously yeah. causes a lot of distress and is something clearly if we ne we needed this vagina Bible, obviously, um, to really understand what it all is and stop using terms like JJ. But also there's this sort of element of or what if it's dirty? What if it's bad? What if it's wrong? And there are some questions coming from listeners shortly. And there are some things in there that I think we still haven't broken that barrier of just being able to say, is my vagina funky? Is there something wrong with it? Do I need a cream? Uh, speaking openly and using medical terminology and not sort of whispering words and going, you know, my downstairs and all that kind of stuff. Right. So are yeah, you... I Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so are you still coming up against that thing of people thinking, do I smell all right? Do I look all right? Yeah, in fact, it's worse than it was. So 25 years ago, and I've, I've had a clinic dedicated to the vagina and the vulva for 25 years. So, so this isn't like I just started doing this 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So 25 years ago, I might see you know, maybe three women a year who were really fixated and worried about their normal anatomy or their normal smell. Um, so not that often. It definitely happened. And so I was used to it, but it was infrequent. In the last 10 years, that has increased exponentially. And it's at the point where this is like close to my bread, like maybe 30% of, of women that I see, um, or maybe not quite 30%, but it's a lot. It's 
you know, if I if I don't do it each week, it would be surprising to me that they're they're worried that they've and it's it's a it's a fascinating combination of um, I think that this proliferation of products, you know, that are like wipes and things mm-hmm. like that. And it's so fascinating to me that intimate wipes, intimate wipes are marketed to women and not men. Their junk is on the outside. Penises and scrotums hang outside of your body. Why do those not need wipes? I don't understand that. The vagina is inside. It's all tucked away outside. It's, it's been taking care of itself. And the wipes were initially for babies. How infantile is to say that's for women, that women should be treating their bottoms like babies. Women don't wear diapers. I mean, for, for feces, if you are fecally incontinent, then yes, wipes can be very useful because having feces smeared on your skin is highly irritating. That's why babies get diaper rash. So if you are an adult woman or any kind of woman with fecal incontinence, then carrying wipes around with you absolutely can be very useful. But that would be the same if you were a man with fecal incontinence too, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not just women who get that. So it's fascinating to me that these are these are marketed squarely to women. Nobody cares about men's rectums. What, those are flowers? Those shoot flowers? Like, I'm seriously, that area behind the scrotum, that smells like puppy paws? I, I don't understand. <laughs> um, and so it's so we see so many more products that are really geared towards that. So I don't know how much of it is that. I don't know how much of it is the um, availability of online naked images. And that's not just porn. I mean, Game of Thrones, like everybody's naked in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, you know, lingerie ads and things. And I think I couldn't fit my labia into that underwear. You know, so, um, you know, I mean, so so everywhere we're seeing more and more naked images that mm. are, you know, photoshopped. Like it's it's fascinating to me that we'll we'll all look at a, a a woman's face on a magazine and most people will say, well, that's been photoshopped. And we're not criticizing the women, we're criticizing the industry for doing that, right? Mm. But people don't think that about genitals. They think that has to be normal. Mm. And I think that gets back to the lack of sex education. And there are some studies that tell us that if you're primed with facts, if you then see false images you know that they're false images, mm. right? Just like most of us know that, you know, that that's someone who is 60 probably has some wrinkles. And, um, and, and if you don't see any in an image, you think, well, it's probably been digitally altered. Um, but we don't think that about the genital tract. And it's fascinating to me. Um, and then it gets back to this whole idea that society pushes that I think society's become bolder because of all these images, right? Mm. So we see plastic surgeons and gynecologists pushing the idea of having like labial reductions, right? Which is so predatory. Your labia are part of your sexual response cycle. They engorge, they have specialized nerve endings. If you pull on them, you're pulling on the clitoral hood that adds all kinds of, you know, good feelings. And we're actually getting doctors telling women those should be smaller. I'm like, wait a minute. Is there an industry that tells men that their penises should be smaller so they look better in their pants? Because <laughs> it's the same thing. It's exact. It would be the same thing as telling a man, and I'm not it, that that they should actually have their physical penis made smaller so it looks more presentable. So this idea that small labia make a woman more presentable, it's like, okay, labia come in all shapes and sizes and stop it. Just stop weaponizing women's bodies against them. And so I think that those, those, that proliferation of naked images has sort of made those conversations happen more and they're happening. And what always happens is the first people to step in the arena are predators. Mm. And it's interesting. You said right at the top of the show about, I always flip it. And I can't think that I've ever heard of scrotum surgery. 
right. Aesthetic well, scrotum surgery. I mean, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, it's no one would tell a man like you see pictures of, you know, men with their junk and their tight, like 20 rock gods with big packages. You'll see that right on those lists. And, you know, why can't we say like, well, there's 20 rock goddesses with labial cleavage. (laughs) Maybe it'll happen. And also, right. (laughs) Yeah. Why? I mean, as you say, flip it. Why not? And also, um, there's a there's a writer over in the UK called Catelyn Moran who, in her book, talked about the fact that the whole waxing trend or the whole hair removal was born of porn because if you don't have any pubic hair, you can see things in far more detail. Everyone talks about the money shot, the penetration. You can see it far more clearly if there's no pubic hair. Yeah, I think that, I think, you know, the pubic hair removal industry is really fascinating because a lot of it in the States also, I mean, was, so when they had strip clubs, you know, up until recently, I guess, um, the definition of, of, um, of ludity was showing pubic hair. So if you made the era of pubic hair smaller, 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 you could show more. This the 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 dance the exotic dancers could show more. They could oh. wear smaller and smaller garments. So that's probably part of it. Um, this idea, you know, that oh, other countries do it, so it's sort of exotic, right? Mm. Um, there's that, and then there's also yes, the money shot, absolutely, which is in everything. I mean, I'm you know, whenever I, I when I watched Game of Thrones, I every single sex scene, I was like, okay. Oh, three seconds from penetration to arching your back and orgasm. Hmm. <laughs> That's not quite how it happens. And my kids are so funny. They're like, we are watching Game of Thrones together. And every time I would freeze it to see how many seconds, I, they'd be like, are you timing the sex scenes again? I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I it's am. research. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. But look, if you look at, so this whole like um, making women's genitalia in, um, like infants, is not actually that new. If you, and I talk about this in the book, find me a Greek statue that has pubic hair and labia. There aren't any. I can't find one. You see penises, you see even urethras, you'll see pubic hair carved on the men, and the women always have their legs closed and it's a mysterious mound that has no pubic hair. And it shouldn't be mysterious anymore, should it, Jen? No. No, it shouldn't. That's the other thing. Whenever we're at museums, my kids are like, do we have to go look for the Greek statues? Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, so how can, how can a, a woman get more in touch with and more knowledgeable about her vagina and her vulva where she no longer feels embarrassed? And also it's worth noting at this point, actually, one thing I thought that was really excellent in the book is that you actually include trans women, which I think yeah. is really important. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and trans men, because, you know, you, I just wanted to include all the ways that you, you can have a vagina and vulva. And, um, I felt that if I'm, if people have looked at me as kind of a leading gynecologist, then, um, then I need to set, set the standard Mm. and say, you know, books about the vagina need to be inclusive because I know that, um, that many doctors are going to read my books and many doctors don't do a good job with trans patients. Um, and that's terrible, but also too, I've had a couple of trans mom of trans kids reach out to me and just, they were like in tears that I had included it in the book. And one who's a mom of a trans boy who's on blockers, um, you know, hormone blockers said, look, I, my book gave her more information than her doctor had. Than you know, than her, than her son's doctor had. And, and that's really sad that, I mean, but then that's the same as everything else. It's sort of this not, how did I not know 
which is kind of where I wrote the book, right? Mm. So, um, so you know, I've, I keep those messages and I put them in a little file. So whenever the trolls are at me online, I kind of look at my little thank you, Jen, um, <laughs> uh, folder. And then on a full moon, do you take them out to the garden and let them recharge? <laughs> 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 no, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have any. My with my wellness practices, coffee and sex. <laughs> um, sex to me is the ultimate wellness for me, and wellness is different for different people. So, do you think the first step is to use the right vocabulary and not be embarrassed by it? Absolutely, because words shape how we think about things. Um, there's a fascinating study that looked at um, two languages, and I think it was German and French. I, I might be paraphrasing. I'm, I might not have it correct. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they looked at um, they looked at the difference between because nouns are gendered, right? I, uh, something can be feminine or it can be masculine. Mm-hmm. And they took languages. They used the same. They took the same thing like bridge. And bridge in one language is feminine and one language is masculine. And in the feminine language, it was described as bridge, people used curvaceous and beautiful and elegant to describe bridges. And in the in the language where bridge was masculine, they said it was strong and architectural and had bold lines. And it's so fascinating to me that the words that we use will shape what we think about mm-hmm. something. Um, and so that's why it's, if you're going to use infantile terms, if society is going to force us to do that, we're going to think about it in a different way. We're going to think about the vagina involved as something we shouldn't talk about. Mm. A euphemism implies that something's shameful. That's the exact implication. So if I only ever change one thing, it would be for people to be able to say vagina when they're talking about the inside and vulva when they're talking about the outside. Uh, and that would be, it shouldn't be an act of revolution, but it seems to be. Mm. Now, I know you said that um, you have a lot of women come in talking about, um, do I look okay? Do I smell all right? Do you, have you noticed the vocabulary changing for the better? Are you feeling like you're making headway? Um, well, maybe a little bit. Um, maybe for, you know, San Francisco is a very sort of, you know, online, I would say medically literate community. Mm. Um, and so I think that it, it may also depend on that. You know, there's um, many schools here, like my kids had high quality sex education in grade seven. So I think that if you're in an environment where you have this high quality sex education presented early, you're going to have a different um you know, you're going to see different things. Mm. So I would say that there's been a small movement and I certainly do see some young women coming in saying my vulva, but it's not much. I wouldn't say that it's been a mm. significant movement. Okay. So we need to work on Can that. Keep working on it. We'll and I think the first it. few times people say it, they stumble. Like it's so fascinating when I do, um, you know, I, because, you know, I have this show in Canada, Jensplaining, and I did uh, for the CBC and I did this whole day of um, radio interviews where you sit in one room and you talk to a different radio host across the country and you do this interview and the number of, uh, of journalists or, you know, anchors, whoever they were, who stumbled over the word vagina and vulva was, was interesting. Um, and even some of the women, and sometimes they caught themselves and said, I don't know why I'm having trouble saying this word because we, but, and so, you know, but I think the more people are sitting in their homes and they're listening to the radio and they hear mm. it being used like it's no big deal. Yeah. Like those are the things that change it. That's why I was sort of thinking when I was writing the book and, you know, I want a vagina Bible on the front. I feel like women are going to be sitting, you know, on subways and on buses and in offices and they're reading it and other women are going to look and they're going to say, 
vagina. And men are going to look at that and say vagina. And people are going to be like, it's going to make it more okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sort of had this like carrying the book was going to be an active revolution. And actually, to that point, Esther Chu um, says that she's described you as a courageous warrior in this movement, and that there are very few women in medicine who are as heard as Jenna's. Oh, well, I, yeah, I just think like, if you have all this privilege, like if I have the privilege of people listening to me, I'm not selling coffee enemas. <laughs> like, wow, <laughs> what a squander of your privilege, right, to, mm -hmm. to do that. Why wouldn't you want to bring everybody up? Why wouldn't you want to help people? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's the difference of whether you have a, a wellness shop or whether you go into medicine. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think that I have all this privilege. And my, you know, I, I couldn't live with myself if I did something else. And I, um, there's a little story I want to share about privilege, if that's okay. I would love um, it. So, so my son, Oliver, is gay, and he came out to me maybe when he was about 13 or 14. And, uh, and he you know, he's like, mom, you, you need to write about me being gay for the New York times. And I said, well, okay. Um, but you know, I, I need, you know, I need a bit of a story because you know, there, there has to be a bit more to that. And then unfortunately, sadly, a story did develop because he got bullied mercilessly at school by some boys. And so he said, so I said, well, you know, I, I think maybe I could write about this, but I'm a bit worried because, you know, it's one thing to live in, you know, the sort of the San Francisco Bay Area where most people, except perhaps some of these boys at school, are very accepting, as people should be. But, you know, the New York Times is this huge international platform and you, you, you're you active on Instagram and people could bully you and it could be worse. And he said, well, mom, he says, ladies listen to you, don't they? He calls everybody who reads my work ladies. So you're a lady. So <laughs> ladies listen to you. I said, well, some do. And he said, so what if uh, when I came out to you, it wasn't a big deal. I said, like, no, not at all. So finding out your son is gay is just something else to love about him. You're finding out something new. Isn't that amazing? And so I, I said, well, that's true. Because so what if um, you wrote about how it was okay for you? I have friends that can't come out to their parents. I know people who can't come out. I know their kids. And so what if one of those parents read that column and they said, well, if it wasn't a big deal for Jen Gunter, maybe it won't be a big deal for me. Mm. And I said, well, what if you get bullied about that? And he said, well, it would be worth it even if one kid could come out because I know that you're going to look after me. And that's the definition of privilege. It's saying like, I'm in this, this situation and how can I extend what I have to other people? Mm. So, so yeah, so that's what I think about when I think about privilege. I think about, you know, how can I extend myself in a way that will help other people? And you, you do put yourself out there. And I think I've read previously, you said at 27, it might have got to me that the criticism, but now I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I've always been pretty resistant to, to resilient to criticism, I guess. Um, certainly, I grew up in a household where everything I did was wrong. So I'm kind of used to ignoring it because I, I didn't believe. But I think the one saving grace is that I didn't believe my parents that I was wrong about everything. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and no one ever talked about sex at all. That was People didn't have sex. Everybody's everybody's genitalia were like Barbie dolls, right? They were all smooth. There was nothing <laughs> going on down there. Um, so I didn't actually have any, I didn't get any information at all. I didn't get any misinformation. So that was probably good. Yeah. But yeah. I just, you know, I, I realized as a physician that you have to give something to get something. When people are going to disclose very personal stuff to you, that's really hard. And so if you can 
can take the lead and show them, then, then that, I think it helps people know that's a safe space. And, um, something happened to me very far, very early on in medicine that sort of really formed that idea was I, I had club feet when I was born and I'm, my feet are okay now. I'm, you know, I had stuff done to them. I don't know what I had casts and things. Um, and you know, I mean, my toes aren't the prettiest, but you know, they're okay. They work fine. And I was in my first year of residency and I was rounding on a patient and we had these, where I trained, we had these ward rooms, right? Like four women in a room with curtains. And I, you, you can't not help, but overhear what's going on. And this woman was crying in the next bed. She wasn't one of my patients, but there was an orthopedic surgeon there explaining about her baby's club feet. And she was sobbing because, you know, finding something about your newborn, that's not, not what you imagine to be perfect is super hard. And so she was crying, crying, and he explained everything and he left. And I happened to be wearing, you know, sandals at the time because it was a hot summer day um, and I wasn't delivering patients. So I didn't have to worry about getting blood on my feet. And so I just I popped my head over and I was like 24. And I said, you know, I just I couldn't help overhearing. I'm Dr. Gunter and I'm sorry. I was I was eavesdropping, but I heard that your baby has club feet and I had club feet when I was born and I'm a doctor and everything worked out OK. And I took my feet out of my sandals and I showed her my feet and she stopped crying and she just was so thankful that, you know, that, you know, that, and it doesn't, and I, you know, I said, it doesn't mean this is what's going to happen to you, but, you know, um, I just thought I would show you maybe having like a point. On, so knowing that fact is like a point on the map. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that's your journey, but when someone tells you something scary about your body, it's like they've, they've told you you're in this horrible, scary place and you have to get to this less scary place. And here's a map and there's nothing on the map. Mm. And you're like, what road am I going to take? What obstacles am I going to see? Like, you know, nothing, you know, nothing about the bad part of the journey, the good part, you know, nothing. And I gave her at least one point on the map and Mm. one point on a map is better than no points on a map. And so I walked out of the room afterwards and this nurse stopped me and I was like, I'm going to get in trouble because, you know, if we're talking to a patient, that's not my patient. I was so worried. And she goes, she goes, what you did for that woman is more helpful than anything anybody in medicine could have done. And that just kind of always stuck with me. And so I've kind of always been a bit of a sharer. I mean, certainly when someone comes in the office, I don't say, well, let me tell you about my vagina sister. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but there are clearly opportunities where it's useful. And I'm not shy about doing that if it's going to help people. Because if I can't talk about my body, I'm like a, an out there gynecologist. So I can't talk about my vulva. Who can? Mm. And not only are you, this is one thing that we have to reference because with the book, obviously I will be putting this on social media, but you actually had to, well, you chose to have words with Jack Dorsey about the fact that the promotion of this book was uh, restricted on Twitter. Is that right? Because the word vagina is naughty. Yeah, naughty. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love the way, I love the way you say naughty. Um, it's, it's way better than the way we say it. It's like naughty. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so my publisher Kensington in the States wanted to do promoted tweets, which is what publishers do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's great. Super. And they were all the ones that had the word vagina, vaginal and OBGYN were, um, were, uh, considered to be rude or, you know, um, you know, uh, distasteful and those were, um, rejected. And isn't that amazing that Twitter can, you know, have promoted ads from like white supremacists or, mm-hmm. you know, all this horrible stuff that happens on Twitter. And here is a, a respected publisher, right. Promoting book by a doctor, a doctor. Yeah. Right? 
and like my whole field OBGYN is, is like, is offensive. Like, I'm sorry, what? But that's what happens when there's no one with vaginas in the room making decisions. Right. Mm. And that's, you know, and it's, it would be so easy, so easy to fix. Mm. I'm not even a computer expert and I can already tell Jack how to fix it. You can have verified accounts from publishers. So, you know, that the stuff that's coming out isn't, you know, isn't, uh, you know, something that's going to lead you to 4chan or whatever they're worried mm -hmm, about. Mm -hmm. Know what they're worried about, but mm -hmm. you could have ver publishers could have verified accounts for Twitter ads. It'd mm -hmm. be simple. That's it. Done. Um, and so, yeah. So they either don't care, uh, well, they don't care. Um, and uh, maybe the maybe the amount of money that publishers want to pay for promoted tweets isn't enough. Maybe if everybody wanted to pay a hundred thousand dollars for promoted tweets, then Jack would be like, hey, jump money. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was really interesting. They refused to sort of talk to anybody until like you know the BBC called them. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is a great point on which to move into listener questions. Okay. So these are from the Facebook group. And I gave people the option to send me private messages. And lo and behold, they did, which is great. So let's crack on with the first one, which is... Um, uh, da -da 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 -da. Is there... Uh, are recurrent spots either on the external pubis or vulva something to be concerned about? Ooh, well, spots could mean so many different things. That could be an ingrown hair. That could be um, patches of eczema. That could be patches of a skin condition like psoriasis. So I think that if you're having, you know, generally things that come and go quickly are generally less of a concern, mm -hmm. right? Badness typically stays. So I would say that if it's something, you know, acutely painful that comes and goes quickly and completely disappears, that's probably an ingrown hair. But, you know, you might want to show your doctor just to make sure. Um, because sometimes skin conditions that... Um, that can become worse down the road could start like that, right? And so knowing about it earlier might then let you to get, might allow you to get started on some kind of preventative or proactive treatment. Um, and if it's, you know, recurrent ingrown hairs, then, then maybe that might lead you to, to change how you're, you know, doing your pubic hair removal, mm -hmm. you know, or not, depending on you know, your body and your choice. And then also, is there a way to make a smear test or a pap smear less triggering or painful for someone who has experienced sexual trauma? Yes, there is. So, um, you know, pap smears should not be painful. And uh, I hear all the time from patients, they say, well, how come this didn't hurt? I'm like, well, because I did it right. I mean, I, you know, it's really <laughs> sad, it's sad. So I think the first step is to figure out, you know, what part is triggering. So for some women, it's coming into the office. And if some women just can't, you know, there are women who put their, put their legs in the supports or the stirrups and they can't even open their legs. You don't ever force an exam at that point. That's someone who maybe either needs to work with a, a therapist for some exposure therapy first, or go to the operating room um, and have some sedation. So it isn't painful and they don't think, you know, so there's, those are those options. Mm -hmm. If someone can actually flop their legs open on the table and can do that, um, you know, we, they make very narrow speculums. So many doctors just go for kind of the large one and kind of just like stuff it in. And you know what, you, you don't need to do that. So what you do is you can, you, you know, talk with the patient. I put my finger on the opening, on the vaginal opening, you know, just sort of talk about this is the muscle I want you to relax. Most people hold their breath, which tenses their muscles. And so we start talking about doing some breathing like you would do in childbirth, putting your hands on your belly helps and taking sort of these big, deep belly breaths and then slide in a very skinny any speculum always asking if it's okay 
-hmm. is the so so asking sort of for assent each each specific step and many women can get through with that some women who can actually if they can't tolerate that can insert the speculum themselves right so i'll ask can you put tampons in Okay, so I'm gonna, you're going to put your hand on the speculum and maybe I'll do a little guide at the back and you're going to insert the speculum. And so those are some ways to go around it. And I think once women know that you're going to stop, if there's any pain, I'll say, any pain, we're going to stop. And then we're going to figure it out. Mm. Um, and then you get to that point. Now, if somebody absolutely can't do any of that and we can't get in with the small speculum, um, and also if some women have pelvic floor muscle spasm, then getting saying, well, let's do a, you know maybe six weeks of pelvic floor physical therapy and then have you come back or let's have you use some vaginal dilators at home and then have you come back. You can also do um, just a vaginal sound, like use it, putting the swab in high and you get very close to the cervix, you can do an HPV test. And while... We know that vaginal self-samples from HPV tests are as good as physician-collected ones, although they're not in the standard of care yet. Hmm. So I couldn't tell someone that. I couldn't say medically that's what you should do. However, your doctor might say, hey, while we're working on these things, let's collect that test because if it's negative, then we know that we have some time to maybe work on it. Mm. If that test is positive, we absolutely really need to figure out how we're going to take care of this really quickly. And then maybe that's when we should move to an anesthetic um, and, and, and figure out how to, to care for you. Because, you know, and I often find that once you, you can do that first exam without discomfort, then subsequent ones are. And, and I have patients who now will only come to, even though, you know, I did their first pap smear because I'm a pelvic, you know, I manage people with pelvic pain, they pain with sex, and they haven't had a pap smear in like eight years. And I'm like, I'll do that for you. Let, let's see if I can do it. Mm. And they're like, oh my God, that didn't hurt at all. And so now I have this whole collection of women who refuse to go to anybody else for their, <laughs> their past fears. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so it's really, it's, it's, it breaks my heart that that happens. Mm. And certainly, you know, uh, a system like the NHS could easily have specialty clinics for that. Mm -hmm. There's no reason they couldn't. There are very defined things that you can do. You could set it up. Um, there are many ways that nurses could screen patients in advance. So it could be, you know, it could be a cost effective way. You could get physical therapists on board because never mind doing the right thing and never mind taking care of patients. The cost savings of one case of cervical cancer is, is going to, you could, you could care for so many, you could do the right thing for so many women mm. that, that it, it's, it's the right thing emotionally. It's the right thing medically. It's the right thing financially. It's one of those things where everything lines up. So mm. why people aren't doing it, I don't know. Okay. Moving on to the next question, just so I want to make sure we get through in the time is I'm in my mid thirties. And in the past few years, my vulva gets really dry, itchy and irritable for a few days after my period. I use Vagisil to ease the itching. I don't know if you have that in the U S but it's, oh, yes, we do. Um, I'm up to date with my pap smear test and mentioned it to the nurse who did an SDD test to rule that out and everything came back. Is there anything I can do to stop this? It's annoying and very uncomfortable and makes sex impossible for about a week to 10 days a month. So the first thing you do is you throw that Vagisil away because that's evil. <laughs> okay. Vagisil has benzocaine in it and that can be very, um, that can produce irritant and allergic reactions. So throw Vagisil away. Any products with benzocaine go in the trash. Um, and then, uh, you know, progesterone actually, which changes in the second half of your cycle makes you more vulnerable to itch. So some women definitely report more itch around their menstrual cycle because they've been primed by exposure to progesterone. And then maybe also they've been using menstrual products that might irritate the skin. 
if you remove your pubic hair, you're more likely also to get itch because one of the roles of pubic hair is to trap humidity in the skin. And um, when skin is more moist, it is has more defense mechanisms and it's less likely to itch. Mm -hmm. So you might want to think about that. The thing to use for itch is a topical steroid, not Vagisil. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's no lesions there, there's absolutely nothing that, that the doctor has seen or the nurse has seen. Um, and it, so it's not a skin condition that's been missed. Then I would say, let your pubic hair grow back. Um, think about using a topical steroid. Um, think about your menstrual products, if those might be irritating and absolutely ditch the Vagisil. Okay. Um, I, uh, someone has posted about vaginal dryness and I was wondering about this too. What are the causes and how can it be treated or dealt with? Do hormonal contraceptives interfere with the dryness and are there any tips for helping with self-lubrication? I struggle with intimacy and self-lubrication much to my partner's frustration. So first of all, your partner should get over himself or herself <laughs> because there's nothing wrong with needing lube. And um, how many times, if you're partnering with men, have you been with a guy and he lost his erection? And so you don't think anything about like going down on him or giving him, you know, a help to get his erection back. That's okay. But needing some lube isn't, it's the same thing. Mm. How is that any different? So, um, you know, so I think that first of all, there's that, that, that your wetness is not a, is, is, should be your concern. That shouldn't be a metric by which your partner judges sort of your sexual experience. Mm -hmm. So that aside, it would depend on your age. If you're a postmenopausal, then vaginal estrogen is very helpful for dryness. If you're premenopausal, there are definitely some hormonal contraceptives that can increase dryness, like the Depo-Provera injection, the implant, Implanon, um, and sometimes even the hormonal IUDs. And um, those can sometimes affect sort of the balance of estrogen in your body. And those can give a sensation of dryness or can cause some vaginal dryness. Um, sometimes a lube is all you need. Sometimes a tiny little bit of vaginal estrogen or, you know, potentially rethinking your method of contraception if that's really the cause. And mm -hmm. your doctor should be able to tell from an exam. However, chronic yeast can also produce vaginal dryness. So you would also want a culture from the vagina to make sure that there isn't yeast hanging around. Um, not just looking under the microscope, but an actual culture that goes to the lab. And so those would be the things. But some people need lube, and that's fine. It's not any kind of metric of whether the sex is good or not. Mm. Um, and uh, and so I would tell people who have hangups about lube to get over it. Um, I wanted to ask about polyps in the cervix. Um, if you have them but have a clear smear test that says everything is okay, my doctor says that's all that matters. But when you Google things, it says that polyps can turn cancerous. I just wanted to know whether I should push to get them checked out further or are they quite normal? My doctor says one in 20 women have them. Uh, well, um, I don't think... I don't know those statistics off the top of my head, but I would think one in 20 is pretty high for cervical polyps. Um, now... Sometimes people confuse something called Nebothian cysts, which are benign cysts in the cervix with polyps. Those are very common and those mean nothing. So you, I want to make sure that we're sort of seeing the same thing because sometimes doctors mm. don't use the right terms when they explain it to patients. So if it's a Nebothian cyst, no big deal. That's mm -hmm. not, it's just, it's one of those things that happens and they don't cause any symptoms. Cervical polyps often bleed and um, cause bleeding after sex. And so for those reasons, we would definitely remove them. It's pretty rare. If we see a cervical polyp, we usually take it out um, because it's so easy. I mean, you, it's, it's like such a minor little procedure. So, um, so I think that, uh, that, that, that I, that's not what I would sort of say to someone. Usually if we see a polyp, because then it, what happens is it bleeds when you take the, 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 the smear test and, you know, and then people are bleeding for days afterwards and everything, you know, so I don't know, that's, 
I don't think I have quite enough information mm. to, to sort of answer that question, but, but in general, um, we, it's not so much the cancer risk with polyps, although obviously that's always a risk. It's kind of more the bleeding after sex, the right. bleeding all the time, that, that kind of sort of nuisance thing. Okay. Um, okay. So yes, that listener should perhaps go and push back for a bit more information and find out if yes. it's a polyp or whether it's a Nebothian cyst. Nebothian cyst. Nebothian yeah. cyst. Um, another listener says, I go through stages of getting pain during sex, but sometimes even when thinking of sex, it's a dull pain, but I have no idea what starts it or makes it go away. Could it just be psychological or stress related? Well, so pain is never psychological. Psychological factors can make pain worse. So if you're stressed, absolutely it makes pain worse, but it's never in your head. I mean, that's not what pain is. Um, so, so pain with sex is not normal and there's always a reason. And so it would depend if the pain is on the outside or inside or both. But for most people who describe adult pain, it's usually actually from the pelvic floor muscles. Those are the muscles that wrap around the vagina. And there's um, a lot of information on that actually in the book. And so that's something that a physical therapist can help you with. Using dilators can be helpful. And that's something that if you were thinking about sex, you might start to inadvertently clench those muscles because that's what's painful. And that might actually give you that pain. Mm. So, and also too, if you're worried something's going to hurt, it's going to make the pain worse as well. Um, because, you know, pain is a, you know, we have a mind body connection. Mm. And so of course that, that can happen. So there's probably a physical reason. And the most common thing with that description would be the pelvic muscles. Um, but it could be other things too. I would get it checked out. Okay. I'm going to uh, fit in one last question. Um, another listener says, I have a prolapse actually too, because it's both sides after childbirth. What can I do to stop it getting worse? I used to run, but I am terrified too now. So running shouldn't make prolapse worse. And it depends on the degree of prolapse. So mild prolapse after childbirth is very common. That's kind of like a feature, not a flaw. The tissue's built to stretch, right? To get a baby out. Mm -hmm. So stretchy tissue loses elasticity and you're going to get some sagging just like we all sag in lots of different places, right? <laughs> With age, our cause. Some of us have collagen that ages differently from others. So, so there's that, and so there can be a genetic component too. Sometimes you see women who've had eight kids, and it looks like they've never been pregnant. And sometimes you see someone who's never been pregnant, and it looks like they've had a couple of children. So we have our collagen is very all very individual. So I would say it depends on what the symptoms of the prolapse are. So it's what's your bother factor. Um, is, are you feeling a pelvic heaviness? Are you feeling that something's actually coming out? Um, a pessary can help the majority of women. That's something that you put in, and even a, it's like a tampon almost. Um, and that can help support the organs. Is it incontinence? Um, and sometimes um, doing Kegel exercises can be very helpful to treat the symptoms of prolapse as well. So there are lots of non-surgical things that can be done. Most women don't need surgery for prolapse. Most can be managed symptomatically. Um, and a lot of women just need reassurance that, yeah, you've got some mild prolapse, but it's on, you know, exercise isn't going to make it worse. And as long as they know that it's not something serious, and they're not really bothered by it. So I would say, what's your bother factor? Mm -hmm. um, and then go from there. And then one, one question has just come in, which is, please, can you ask about the best natural remedies for Bartholin gland cysts? Also, any suggestion for prevention of future flare-ups? So um, there, is, there is nothing uh, to treat Bartholins that 
that people would think about as natural. So there's no herbs or there's no non-conventional therapies. Unfortunately, so sometimes Bartholin cysts will go away on their own, and those are cysts at the vaginal opening that get very large. Um, and if they're a small cyst, um, you know, putting a hot compress on it, that's not too hot, but, you know, for 15 minutes at a time, you don't want to burn the skin, can help um, help make that good, can help reduce inflammation. So if you have a small cyst, a hot compress can be helpful. But if you have a large, super painful cyst that, that's like an abscess, that needs to be treated surgically. There, there isn't any other way about it. So it tends to be hot compresses or surgical treatment. To that point, um, when I saw natural remedies in the question, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to ask it. Are there natural remedies for the vagina and vulva? No, there's just remedies. If something is... <laughs> If something works, we it becomes medicine. Mm. It becomes medicine if it works, right? So you know, um, so there there are you know that that's what I would tell people. Mm. Like, sure, you know, it's not wrong to try. Like, aspirin is you know derived from willow bark. Great, yeah. So it works. I mean, for pain. So I think that it's really important for people to realize that that things are either medicine or they're not. And this qualifier with natural doesn't help anybody because it's an, it doesn't mean natural means nothing. Mm. I, you could, you can have a different definition than my definition than anybody's like organic. It means mm. nothing. It has been honestly a pleasure speaking to you and I am holding up on Skype. I'm holding up the book, the vagina Bible, which is, and th I thought that this absolutely brilliantly summed it up. I found this online. The vagina Bible is an accessible, but largely academic resource on vaginal health with PG language and exactly zero mentions of you-know-who, meaning, <laughs> meaning the wellness industry. And that's why I thought, if you follow you on Twitter, actually, this really, this is an, an expression of your expertise. And I would say you can dip in, dip out, but you will learn something. You can read it from cover to cover, or you can go to it as and when you need it. It's brilliant. Aww. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.